folks, and welcome or welcome back to NTI's Japan Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Ziv Nakajima, again. And this podcast was brought to you, among others, by Emil Gorgis, a Tokyo real estate agent who specializes in serving international or mixed nationality families looking for the perfect family home. So Emil's in Australia. He's been living here in Japan for the past two decades, eight years of which he's been actively buying, selling, and managing real estate properties in the city on behalf of his own family and a great many happy clients. And he also acts as a mortgage broker on behalf of his clients. So his company has a dedicated loan officer in many of the Japanese mega banks. And if you're a regular listener, you probably already know him from our JREP, the Japan Real Estate Experts panel sessions. So you're probably already aware that the man is an absolute fountain of wisdom on all things related to real estate in Japan. And in particular to family homes, the greater Tokyo metropolitan area and mortgages. And most importantly, he's incredibly generous with his time and advice, which he's more than happy to provide at no cost or commitment to anyone asking. So if you've been thinking about buying your home in Tokyo, but you've been sitting on the fence for a while, or if you just want to have a chat in English with a real expert, drop him a line on emil.gorgis, that's E-M-I-L dot G-O-R-G double E S Emil dot Gorgis at Tokyo Realty dot JP. Hit him up today and start exploring your options. All right, so we're back. My deepest, sincerest apologies for the long radio silence. It's been about three weeks since our last episode, and I'm ashamed to say that that's been due to a very silly reason, mainly IT issues. So my PC died on me, and the backup PC we've got here in the office simply was not up to the task of handling audio and video recording and editing. But my darling is back in my arms now, working better than ever, and stoked to get the show back on the road again, or so he tells me. So to kick things off, here's a very geeky interview that I've given to a couple of very smart young men from the Copenhagen Business School in Denmark. They wanted to ask me some questions related to the topic of Japan's lost decades. So the 25-odd years following the bubble crash that occurred here in the early 1990s. And we talk a whole lot of macroeconomics. So the factors that led to the crash, the bankruptcies that ensued immediately after that, good and bad practices in the real estate and banking sectors before and after the crash, foreign currency, outbound, inbound investments uh, into and out of Japan by both Japanese and foreign entities, uh, the lasting trauma that many Japanese still have as a result of that painful period of time, and we also talk a bit about the Japanese Keiretsu system, which is a set of companies with interlocking business relationships and shareholdings, how these alliances operate and whether they had a part to play in the events that led to the crash, how effective they are in the global environment. And we touch a little bit on central banks, deregulation, uh, borrowing, and much, much more. So again, a really geeky macroeconomics-oriented conversation that I hope will hold some interest for you. Hope you enjoy it, and I'll see you again on the other side. Maybe, maybe as a quick introduction, uh, it would be great if you could tell us what exactly it is that you're doing, how maybe you have uh, beca become interested or also knowledgeable about real estate in Japan. Maybe like a quick bio would be great. Uh, sure. Do you want that on the recording or? Yeah. Sure. Oh, we're already recording. Okay. Feel, feel free. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay, so my name is uh, Ziv Nakajima again, and I'm one half of Nippon Tradings International, which I've started along with my uh, partner, my wife and business partner. And this was back in 2011. 
And what we do is essentially we help property buyers um, who are non-Japanese. So they could be resident in Japan, they could be resident overseas, but they're finding it for some reason or another, I mean, a bunch of reasons. We can get into that if you're interested, but um, it's a little bit challenging to do business with the Japanese. Just in the sense that like, if you go anywhere in the world, whether it's Asia or the Western world, usually there's a lot of people who are happy to do business with foreign investors and you sort of have to sort and pick through them to find the reliable ones. In Japan, it's kind of the other way around. So everyone's reliable, but nobody wants to work with you as a foreign investor. They're very foreigner shy. And so what we do is we help foreigners uh, purchase and then down the track, if they want to sell, we help them with that as well. And mainly to manage their portfolio in Japan. So it could be investment properties, could be land for development. Uh, it could be holiday homes for a lot of people who want to come here a few months a year and they just want to buy a little place that they can um, they can set up shopping when they're here. So we bridge all of that. We give them a single point of, point of contact in English and we give the Japanese side um, a Japanese face to deal with and promise them they'll never have to speak to scary foreigners and everything will be in Japanese and so forth. And we've been doing that for about just over a decade now. I actually have somewhat of experience with that because I've been living in Japan for quite a while as well. And just for even renting apartments, not that easy, actually, to any kind of like, you know, housing or real estate related business. They, they tend to be a bit well reserved, maybe, I'd say. Yes. Unfortunately, that's still the case. Yeah. Um, so we uh, actually are and so in the thesis that we're writing. We're looking into uh, the Chinese real estate market and sort of comparing developments ongoing today with uh, developments in the Japanese real estate market during the bubble economy. So uh, basically the late 80s and then, you know, whatever, everything that kind of led into that last decade. Uh, so we actually do have a couple of questions more in a historical context. Uh, so Japanese real estate market, how it looked, you know, during that bubble time and then how it has developed until today. Uh, how, how long have you been in Japan, by the way? Um, I've been coming and going for about 20 years, but living here long term about 10. Okay, cool, cool. Uh, if you well, if you don't mind, then I'll just get started with, uh, with the questions. Um, so the, the first question that we would be having is, uh, yeah, bubble related. Um, so obviously the Japanese economy has not really fully recovered from that bubble crest till today. There is this whole lost decade sort of term where it took quite a while for the Japanese economy, also the real estate market prices to go up after the bubble crash in the early 90s. What do you think, what factors in the real estate industry have contributed to these lost decades? It's a tricky question because my personal perspective on that is that real estate is more of an indicator of underlying economic and, and commercial issues. And um, I personally see the real factors contributing to um, to bubbles, regardless of where they are and when they are, is more to do with kind of a combination of, of government policies that have gone wrong and um, general greed in the market um, that sometimes is, is a derivative of that or a reliant on that. So real estate being high ticket items and, and a very large part of a country's economy can definitely look like it's a factor, but I think it's usually more a factor that might be expediting the crashing of a bubble, or it might be something that's indicative of a bubble that's about to crash, but calling it a factor is stretching it a bit, in my opinion. Like if you look at Japan, for example, there were other things that came way before the real estate bubble 
um, actually appeared, right? So there was a, a deregulation of the banks somewhere in the early 80s. And then that led to a combination of factors, one of which was the um, money became a lot easier. Banks were started to compete with each other. They started to uh, offer better interest rates. They lost a lot of corporate clientele because a lot of um, Japan was starting to open up to the world in a wider fashion and a lot of a lot of corporate clients suddenly had other options for financing whether domestically or overseas and that led the banks to then start lending to more risky clients so smaller medium-sized enterprises and so forth they didn't really have the experience or the capacity or the right policies in place to handle those kind of high-risk loans um, so yes real estate was involved in that Calling it a factor, I'm not sure. I think it's more of an indication of something that's about to happen than an actual factor causing it. Definitely expedited it, but I don't think cause is the right word. I suppose real estate was one of the uh, main drivers where all that cheap money and cheap credit was basically funneled into by corporations, right? I a mean, whole lot of it, yeah. yeah. Uh, but I mean, that I guess also then like fueled up prices to, to astronomical levels at some point. Oh yeah, de definitely expedited. There's no question about that. But I, I think it more expedited the crash than the forming of the bubble. Okay. You know what I mean. Would you would you say, or I suppose so, but how would you say that corporate strategies of real estate companies or large real estate conglomerates in Japan have shifted after the bubble then burst? Because uh, I mean, you, you can you see kind of you look into news about Japanese real estate companies in the late 80s, you see uh, Mitsubishi Estate buying basically all of Rockefeller uh, Center and, and stuff like that, right? There's been heavy uh, foreign investment. Have have Japanese real estate companies' corporate strategies shifted after the bubble then bursted? Um, the ones that survived definitely did um, alter the way they did business in a lot of ways. Um, again, that wasn't specifically um, real estate companies, but it was more of a general I'm no historian, so take everything I'm saying with a grain of salt, but there were definitely a lot of practices related to um, uh, sitting on debt, uh, sitting on assets, sitting on on, on assets founded, uh, funded by debt that they simply had to cut loose or the ones that survived. I mean, first of all, not all of them did that. I mean, bankruptcies accelerated humongously after the uh, bubble crash. Just between 1990 to 1991, there were... I think 66% uh, rise in the uh, amount of companies that went bankrupt and the amount of um, unresolved debt as a result of those bankruptcies went through the roof. I think it was double between 99, from 2 trillion yen to 8 trillion yen, double, quadruple in that one year. So definitely a lot of businesses did. Oh, I think we, uh, you, you just froze for a moment there. Am I with you still? Yes, now you are. Yeah. So the ones that did survive adopted, uh, first of all, they had to let go of a lot of debt, um, which was a tough pill to swallow for a lot of them because obviously when they were selling after the bubble crash, they didn't get nearly as much as they would have gotten just prior to that, but they simply had to do it. They had to get rid of that debt. A lot of them had to reduce inefficiencies in a lot of different uh, segments within their corporate structures. So for example, they started enforcing early retirement. Right? They stopped holding on. The, the, whole, the whole concept in Japan of the lifetime employment from the day you join a company until the day you die, that's slowly been dwindling away since the bubble crashed. And 
these days it's not really a thing anymore. It's probably more of a thing than it is in other countries, but nowhere near what it was pre-bubble days. So you will get a, a healthy retirement package, but you're not going to be inefficiently contributing. I mean, there was overemployment. There's no just no other way to put it. And the construction industry specifically had a lot of that. So they've adapted with that. They've adapted with um, once they got rid of the bad debt, the ones that survived um, started borrowing a lot less. They started borrowing for less risky projects. And there was none of those um, huge concrete monsters that nobody's living in because, you know, if you build it, they will come kind of thing. Money was not available when it was available. Even the companies themselves figured out that it wasn't a good idea to, to borrow as freely as they were doing previously. And um, so they've shifted to some degree. These days, we're sort of seeing them slipping into those same behavioral patterns again, though. Um, we might be able to get to that a little bit later, but um, kind of like politicians or, or the public in general, they, they tend to have a short memory when it comes to, um, comes to those practices that should be still in place. So we're seeing a lot of it come back, not as badly as before, but it's still here. I see. Uh, you, you, you mentioned often, oftentimes on that question that uh, companies that did survive. So uh, so obviously there there were a lot of firms, as you said before, that went bankrupt, especially within the real estate industry during that era. Uh, what do you think were the decisive factors in the companies that did not go bankrupt? How uh, What can you see in terms of strategic differences between the firms that made it and the firms that didn't? And so those practices that we've just mentioned, the ones that adopted these sorts of practices, less reliance on debt, um, if you do rely on debt, make it good debt, and um, just in, in, improve your efficiency and increase your productivity and uh, cut out the overemployment. That was a major factor. The other thing was diversity, right? So you can't constantly, you see that, for example, today, if you look at um, JREITs, Japanese Real Estate Investment Trusts, the one that do that did the best throughout the pandemic are the ones that were diversified, right? So the uh, the mixed portfolios, the mixed purpose funds, all of these companies that didn't focus only on a single industry or only on a single location. Some of them diversify within Japan and without of Japan. The more diversification you have generally in, in economics and business, the the more crisis resistant you are. And then you see that a lot. The the cadence of structures, for example. Um, a lot of them have different companies within the structure, and there's a lot of a lot of counter and, and um, pro and counter arguments to whether that's an efficient structure or not. But mm -hmm. the fact that there are a lot of companies within your group umbrella that diversify into different kinds of industries and market segments, um, it's not crisis proof, but it's definitely crisis resistant. I see. Was there any kind of governmental assistance also in terms of financial help during that period, during the bubble period, to certain larger conglomerates, or were they acting more or less on their own? Um, the ones that had banks within the corporate umbrella definitely uh, did receive a significant amount of support. Um, so pre-deregulation, they were pretty much um, immune to any sort of uh, corporate losses. So that was not the case anymore after the bubble burst. But there was still a lot of support. I mean, the um, the too big to fail mantra hasn't hasn't escaped Japan in that sense. Similar to what you see what you've seen in the U.S. when the global financial crisis hit, we have a lot of that here. Yeah. And again, the 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 vast the, the vast size and, and and structure of these mega companies make make them also more resistant to uh, mergers and acquisitions and so forth and hostile takeovers. 
And so not necessarily via government protection, but they are they do tend to be a little bit more protected financially when these sort of things happen. So talking about these like uh, K Redstone networks, right? Like big Japanese umbrella groups. Um, how has their uh, how has Japanese real estate's membership within these networks affected the burst of the bubble? So I mean, it's uh, always interesting if you look into K this is how they have you know financing within their own, and basically everything is somewhat uh, dependent on each other within a certain network, right? Uh, is there any kind of business conduct that has changed following the bubble burst? Because I think you can read quite often times that there were a lot of informal things going on within Kedetsu networks at the time. So, so you said bad death that kind of became apparent after the bubble was never reported before and stuff like this. Uh, has has Kedetsu business conduct basically changed after the uh, the bubble burst? So there's a lot more scrutiny on them these days, whether that's directly related to the, I mean, definitely within that period of time, that sort of scrutiny increased, but that's also been progressing over time since then. And obviously the, um, the more, the, there's nowhere you can hide these days as much as you could have in the old days. So there's definitely more of an, an eye on them. There's definitely more deregulation occurring. There's definitely more monitoring by the government. So they are not, they're probably not as free to do as they please as they used to be. Um, whether that particular structure is, is a good thing these days or not, I mean, it's a very debatable point. There are, again, there are, depends on who you ask, there are people who believe that there, I mean, obviously there are a lot of efficiencies in being able to do everything under the single corporate group. And th there's two types of, of Keretsu, by the way. There's the vertical and horizontal types. So they're either at different different types of companies within the same group umbrella, or the different, um, or there could be um, uh, suppliers. Uh, let's say if you're a single industry, let's say Toyota, for example, everything that you do that's related to cars would be done within your company umbrella. And then there are the horizontal, the, um, the horizontal types where you will be diversifying into different types of industries and different industry segments. And then you'd have different groups in each of each and every yeah. one of those segments. And the way they operate and how efficient they are depends on that structure as well. I think that these days with globalization being what it is and the uh, competition that each of these companies' clients, um, sorry, that each of, its, each of the uh, clients have access to different types of services and products from different kinds of um, companies, whether domestically or internationally, they definitely don't have the uh, the teeth that they used to back in the day. So I don't know. I don't I wouldn't say they're a thing of the past. They're definitely very much still here, but they're not as efficient or as monopolous as they used to be. Would you say it's been an uh, advantage for uh, for real estate firms to be part of Keiretsu during the bubble period? Or would you say that maybe this would have never gotten to those proportions if it weren't for them being within Keiretsu networks? I, I think similar to your first question, it definitely started off as an advantage. I mean, obviously they were formed for a reason, um, but it definitely expedited things as well. I mean, um, if you're not being monitored and there's no corporate governance and there's a lot of room for making irrational or not really financial savvy decisions where you would have gotten for a different solution if you didn't have to source it within the group. And so in a similar way to everything else that we've discussed, and yes, they definitely expedited the crash. Um, but they, that also, I mean, the structure also assisted them in surviving it. So, I mean, the, there's something to be said for both approaches. I see. 
Um, so actually, one question going forward a little bit now. So after years of decline of prices, you can actually see in the news now that newly built condo prices are reported to have reached bubble prices again, actually, even in spite of you know economic slowdown related to COVID uh, in the past years. What do you think which factor are decisive in this development? And uh, then follow up question would be, is there already a new bubble forming? I find it difficult to call this a bubble um, for a few reasons. Firstly, if you look at Japan as a whole, what you're seeing, uh, yes, new condo builds in central Tokyo and to a certain degree in central Osaka are at that level. But the rest of the country in many places is still ridiculously cheap. So if you look at um, if you look at prefectural capitals and even some of Japan's secondary cities, and if you look at um, secondhand as opposed to brand new builds, there are places for sale in Japan that our customers buy on a regular basis. You buy a studio unit for 20, 30, 40,000 US. So to say that there's a bubble forming within Tokyo, maybe within Japan, we're definitely very far from that yet. And the rest of the country still have a lot of room to grow before it comes even close to those proportions. And um, the other thing is, um, Japan's debt these days is held domestically. So, I mean, even if you look at the bubble back in the 90s, um, yes, there has been a crash. But if you look at what a crash means in other parts of the world, people burning tires in the street, bank rushes, the sort of thing that you see when a country's economy implodes in other places, none of that ever happened in Japan, right? So it could be due to the Japanese mentality. Um, the, the phrase they use here called shogunai is just, you know, bear it and move forward. Or you, you could call it uh, government protectionism. You could call it a lot of things. But I think if you look at what the pandemic has done, for example, it didn't really cause a crash. Like you were saying, Tokyo and Osaka have bubbled up specifically. But as long as the rest of the country is not following suit, Japan has a lot of metropolitan centers aside from Tokyo and Osaka. And we see even migrationary trends within domestic Japan, people moving like they did after the um, tsunami and the nuclear disaster in 2011. People were moving out of Tokyo. Similar thing was happening when the pandemic started. Tokyo Central Ward started losing population for the first time in a long time. So I think we're still a bit off from being able to call it a bubble of any sort. We interrupt this broadcast. I always wanted to say this. We interrupt this broadcast to tell you about Tokyo Family Stays. They're a short-term rentals company in Tokyo, and they offer a home away from home experience, which is just perfect for remote working, quarantining, or if you just need summer quiet to hide away from the world. So they offer a variety of options for families, for corporate relocations, or simply if you're transitioning between homes in Tokyo. Now, the properties are super comfortable, tastefully furnished, fully equipped with all amenities, and they accommodate up to 10 people. So really, the only thing you'll need to bring with you is your toothbrush and maybe a change of clothes. They've got fast, unlimited wireless internet, dedicated workspaces, and fully equipped kitchens. And they're just a delight to stay in, a fantastic alternative to Japanese business hotels, which if you've ever stayed in one, you probably know they're tiny, they're noisy. Fine for a night or two if you're on your own, but long-term or with a family, you'll probably feel you're in a jail cell very quickly. So if you want to give yourself a sense of space and freedom by renting a real home with comfortable Western beds, including all the necessities like baby bedding, children's toys, high chairs, you definitely want to reach out to Tokyo Family Stays. 
They've been at it for over a decade. They're a fully licensed Minpaku or short-term stay operator. And as a special bonus for our viewers and listeners, they're also throwing in a breakfast basket upon arrival for anyone who books and mentions the Japan Real Estate Podcast or NTI. And not only for guests, if you're a property owner, you've got an investment property that you want to tweak for higher profits or a holiday home that you want rented out when not in use via short-term stays, drop them a line today, see how they can help you maximize your property's income. And again, as a special bonus to our viewers and listeners, they're also offering a free audit of your existing short-term stay listings without any obligation whatsoever. So feel free to reach out to them at tokyofamilystays.com. Well worth your visit. And again, if you're in the market for a family home in or around the Tokyo metropolitan area, Emil's your man. Don't be shy to reach out to him as well at emil.gorgies, G-O-R-G-E-E-S at tokyorealty.jp. However, what would you ascribe to the fact that uh, like newly built condos at least have gotten so expensive again? Um, well, one thing that the pandemic has done is it's created a shift in the way that people are viewing uh the the footprint of their private homes these days so now because japan not to the extent of the other countries but japan has adopted a working from home mentality at least to some degree um people mainly husbands are being uh, relegated to work from home they need an extra office they need extra room and in the center of a big city like tokyo and osaka um obviously space is a is a huge commodity right it's it's something that's very rare to come by Developers haven't quite come up with enough new construction that suits that new floor plan that people need. So anybody who wants to stay in the city is finding it very difficult to buy a condo of the size that they want. So that's kind of the perfect storm in the sense that it helped. Prices were already increasing and that's kind of helped them in that way. But again, those are newly built condos. So these are properties that people are buying um, either directly from developers or very shortly after construction. And they're buying them. Um, they're buying them with a mortgage, which in Japan is still interest rates are extremely low. Um, so it does make sense that demand is huge. Um, but again, it's only newly built condos, and it's only central Tokyo and to some degree central Osaka. It's definitely not a national thing. Mm -hmm. um, well, the, what regarding condos, there uh, you actually read a lot if you look into the 80s real estate landscape in Japan, how there were a lot of high-rise constructions being built that remained empty for quite a long time. It's something you also recently read about in China a lot. Um, yeah. Is that to a degree still the case in Japan today or is uh, our new developments more on a need basis than uh, than they were before? There's ebbs and flows, but that was the case before the pandemic as well. So when an area becomes increasingly popular, then developers will come in and start building construction. So then there's huge demand in that area. The constructions come on the market and then there's more supply than demand. And it goes it goes up and down as people move into these areas and as developments fill out. And they're definitely not being built and standing empty at the moment. What you are seeing standing empty is the smaller townships that are decreasing with depopulation as people conglomerate into the bigger metro centers, but those are not new. You don't see you don't see new construction standing empty in Japan at the moment now. I see. Which isn't that kind of uh, contradictory, though, if you hear that there's a lot of, you know, in the 80s, at least there was a lot of empty high rise constructions, but nevertheless, prices rose so dramatically, even though there was so much oversupply, basically. Counterintuitive in the sense of what, why was the price going up, you mean? Exactly when there was um, because, a lot of empty well, 
Yeah, because the developers grabbed those land parcels and further inflated prices simply by virtue of utilizing them. They were not vacant anymore. There were now construction projects being built on them, and it was getting more and more difficult to buy. I mean, what appreciates in Japan is always the land. It's never the structure. Um, the more you utilize this land for building, regardless of someone's renting it. And it's also the nature of any speculative market. People are not in a speculative environment. People are not buying those properties because they're expecting rental income. They don't they don't think that they need to care about rental demand. They're buying them because they want to sit on that land and they're hoping that they're going to be selling it at a profit. So the, the fundamentals of rent, demand and supply don't necessarily correlate with them, with the prices of the properties. Okay. Would you, as somebody, as somebody who deals with property buyers within Japan today, would you say that there is still some kind of a bubble trauma from back then that affects property buying behavior in Japan? Yes, very much so. Um, if we look at the people that we're buying properties from, so our clients are all foreigners and they're buying properties from existing property owners, um, it's almost never going to be, um, let's call it uh, late 30s to late 50s kind of sellers. So the people who grew up um, and, and have some sort of memory of the bubble crash, whether it's people who were children at the time or people who are just entering the job force at the time. Uh, so the children remember the trauma that their parents went through. There was talk around the house, there was crisis. And the people who have actually purchased it around that time have obviously suffered personally. And um, the people that we buy properties from these days are either um, elderly folks, so people who have lived through quite a few boom and bust cycles. You know, If you've been through World War II, then the bubble crash of the 90s is not just a big deal. And those kinds of people when they get older and they start thinking about what they're going to be doing with their assets, they usually come to their kids and says, okay, I've got, you know, I've got this and this and this and that property. Shall I, shall I let you inherit it when I pass away? And the kids are so traumatized. They're saying, no, just sell it. Give us cash. You know, we, we don't want to deal with property. So you see young and middle-aged families um, very much interested in owning their own home. So they'll all apply for a homeowner mortgage if they can to own a property. And if they're very affluent, they might go for a holiday home as well, but they don't they don't consider property investment or, or investment of any kind for that matter. They, they become very, very risk averse to the point where they're just interested in cash savings uh, as opposed to any other kind of investment. And I think that's very much a, a result of the bubble trauma, yes. Uh, so we, these days, we buy from elderly folks or from real estate companies who do that as a, as a regular business, not from anyone between 30s to 50s. All right. Um, actually, there's a there's a thing, you know, that I mentioned before with the Mitsubishi buying the Rockefeller Group in the 1980s and Japanese real estate companies back then investing heavily abroad. Is that still something that Japanese real estate firms are doing today, investing heavily abroad? Um, yes. So foreign direct investment has always been on the rise in the last five years. Five years, just up, let, let me just bring up, I was actually just looking at that Excel sheet. So between 2014 to 2019, let's call it just before the uh, pandemic hit, um, foreign, direct uh, foreign outbound direct investment by Japanese company has almost doubled. It took a little bit of a hit um, when COVID hit, um, but now it's starting, even in 2021, it started to rise again. And that's a trend that's probably not going to change. What has changed is where they're directing their money. So if up until the um, just after the global financial crisis, it was mostly the U.S. 
with the Europe second and Asia third. These days it's mostly Asia with the US and Europe second and third. So the funds are not necessarily going to the US these days. They're going to uh, China, to Vietnam, to Myanmar. Um, and, but I think that's more of a shift of the global, uh, the global shift in, in funds and capital from the West to, to Asia, right? So Japanese investors are as savvy as other investors. They recognize that's where the money is and that's where they're going. But volumes-wise, no, it's only it's only been going. I mean, it goes up and down when some crisis hits somewhere, but it's generally on the up always. Yeah, I see. Uh, so then, more of a general question: Would you say today is a good time to invest in Japanese real estate? And that's a super super difficult question to answer because it's really general. Um, it's always a good time to invest in in particular locations, but it depends on what you're investing in and where within the country you're investing. So what geographical location and what market segment. Um, now is a very good time to invest in Japan uh, if you're not investing in Tokyo and Osaka. If you're investing in some of the other metropolitan centers, so uh, Fukuoka, Nagoya, uh, Sapporo, Kyoto, and a lot of the prefectural capitals, so places that are close enough to a big city or are the biggest city of their prefecture, which is not necessarily a super central one, those are still very good investments. So the um, prices there are still um, at the bottom level or maybe slightly over the bottom level of what they were um, post-bubble. So let's call it late 2012 when they bottomed out and started reversing. A lot of places haven't really gone up even since then. So those places are still very good to hit because Property prices have more than halved since the bubble burst, um, but rents are slowly uh, are slower to respond to these sort of events. Um, cost of living, uh, cost of living has gone down, but not to the same extent of property prices crashing. So that gap provides very good yield. So if you're investing anywhere other than central Tokyo, central Osaka, yes, there are very good good deals to be had. I see. Uh... Final question from me. I think Casper has some follow-up after this. Uh, what would Japanese real estate companies, what can they do today and what are they doing to avoid the bubble uh, bubble forming like we've seen in the in the 1980s to a similar extent? And so that, that's the exact same answer we've given to what happened after the bubble crash. They need to be more efficient. Um, they obviously need to be a bit more globalized. Uh, some of them are, are starting to wise up to that. And the domestic market here is shrinking rapidly. The workforce is shrinking. The economy will eventually shrink. I mean, if you're looking at a country that's shrinking at two, three, four, five percent a year, um, any kind of economic growth is a bloody miracle. So there's only a limit to how far. Investment fund overseas. Um, I think reliance on the domestic market only is going to be very painful in the coming years. And a lot of them, again, have been doing that. And the same sort of stuff that we've discussed before. So becoming more efficient, not being overemployed, not being over leveraged. Uh, those are all very good practices that should be in place. Unfortunately, it looks like the past is a bit too quickly forgotten because a lot of them are being super leveraged again. A lot of them um, are still employing people that they shouldn't be employing just because it's customary not to fire them. A lot of them are doing a lot of um, in-house Keiretsu style um, trading and, and commerce, which is not always a good idea. Um, I guess it's the same practices. Whether they're all going to adopt it, I doubt, uh, but some of them have.
Thank you very much. All right. Um, pleasure. Then, then uh, one more a bit historical question is that so in the the real estate bubble did not really take off until then until the uh, 1985 Plaza Court uh, where the yen was appreciated. And, and scholars often call the Plaza Accord a reason for why the bro uh, bubble burst. Do you think this was the, the main reason as well? Uh, and, and why? The what? The yen appreciating? And the Plaza Accord in, in 85 and then the yen appreciation uh, right afterwards. Um, the Plaza Accord, I'm not that familiar with. So unless there's another name for it, I'm not sure what that actually means. Could you Could you educate me on that one? As a, as a quick uh, explanation, so in, uh, in 1985, there was an agreement set between uh, several, uh, I think, G7 countries at that time um, about the US basically complaining that there was a huge uh, trade deficit with Japan and uh, they wanted to fix it with appreciating the yen, uh, which did not really help at all fixing their trade deficit, but led to, you know, Japanese companies obviously now struggling with um, remaining competitive overseas with a more expensive yen. Uh, so yeah. a lot of scholars will then say that in turn left, so Japanese companies did not want to jeopardize their market shares. So uh, they would continue uh, selling at the same low prices and finance that through uh, cheap, um, cheap credit that they would get back uh, from the Bank of Japan and from the Ministry of Finance. Uh, yeah. That sort of set in motion the entire uh, cheap, uh, cheap credit sort of uh, development. Um, and then there's, you know, certain people say that's uh, been main that's that's been one of the reasons for this bubble forming and bursting. Other people say actually, you know, for example, a Deutsche Mark also appreciated during the same time, so did the Franc, and nothing happened there. Uh, so people are a bit, you know, not sure whether that's a reason for the bubble or not. We just wanted to see what you think. Well, I think the yen appreciation. I wasn't aware of the fact that the the Plaza Accord was part of what caused that, but the yen appreciation definitely had a part to play. But but again, as with most bubbles, it needs to be more than one factor, right? So, the yen appreciating uh, is probably one of the main reasons that um, interest rates um, were not going anywhere during the time just prior to that, right? Just prior to the crash. So. The Bank of Japan didn't really have a viable reason to increase rates until they've just decided to do it because they saw where it was heading, but but not due to any economic concerns. Um, but it was it couldn't have been just that, like you're saying, uh, Deutsche Mark or other currencies would have gone up without triggering that sort of effect. I think the deregulation of the banks combined with that um, and the fact that people were looking for other financing options aside from the banks, those sort of things, again, sort of combined to create the perfect storm. So the end appreciation definitely helped, but I don't think it could have been a sole factor for anything like that, no. What, what was the sentiment back then in the in the mid-80s to start this like huge surge of deregulating things in Japan? Because, I mean, things have worked pretty well in the decades before, right? There was high economic growth post-World War II. Uh, with certain degrees of uh, regulation. I mean, you know, people would always say they've sort of had a hybrid economic model, something between the states and European countries. What, what, what was decisive that, you know, Japanese policymakers were like, all right, let's, uh, let's deregulate everything and see how that works. As far as I can tell, it was similar to what uh, Abesan was doing with the agricultural uh, monopoly, for example, when he came into power. I mean, what, Japan in the 80s was a, a rising force. And the concept was that to be competitive in global markets, you have to be less protection, uh, pr protection oriented. So 
there was a lot of um, there was a lot of uh, demand on the government to to allow these companies to play more in the free market and banks were you know some of the main i mean they were so risk averse and so inefficient in their investment strategies that there was a lot of pressure on the government to just open up the market and make them make them a bit more uh, competitive so that they can compete with global markets but i think it was done as is, unfortunately is the case many times in japan it was done without actually preparing them for the transition so it was sort of a, okay hands off now go compete and yeah. they had just they simply didn't have a clue on how to do that I see. Actually, actually, now that you mentioned Avesan, um, so I mean, there, you know, after the, during the last decade, sort of, you know, nothing, all the fixes by different uh, by different governments, uh, Koizumi, for example, I think Hatoyama and so on, all didn't really work. Abenomics is sort of the first kind of program where people ascribe certain success to with stabilizing certain trends. Certain uh, success, yeah. <laughs> certain success, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Well, with you being in the real estate industry, is there uh, has have, have things changed? Regulations, policies within the real estate industry during Abe's uh, administration? Uh, would you also say that to a certain degree has to contribute to the mediocre success, somewhat success of those? Um, I don't recall seeing any major regulatory changes in the real estate industry since we've been in business, which is late 2011, early 2012. Um, the only major shift that I can recall is the clampdown on Airbnb and short-term stays. Otherwise, not much. There have been some um, financial deregulation, not deregulation, some financial policy shifts within banks and lending practices. Um, that have become a bit more strict, but not directly related to real estate. Although a lot of the borrowing, of course, has to do with real estate. Um, there's been one big scandal here, but again, that's more related to a bank. We had the Suruga Bank uh, scandal where they were um, lending prop lending money for properties that were just inefficient rent-wise and led to a, led to a bit of uh, uh, corruption and reckless lending and borrowing and so forth, but no major real estate specific real estate regulate regulations i can't remember any that have changed now mm. all right um from my side that's uh that's been super super helpful we've gained amazing insights from you casper if, if you don't have anything then i think this okay. uh concludes the interview sorry also for going over time awesome yeah good Thank to you. talk to you guys um so there you have it, hardcore macroeconomics discussion there. It's a lot of fun to take a bird's eye view like that once in a while, for me at least. So I really appreciated the opportunity. Hope you did as well. Now, before we go, we're also as always going to tell you and also link to our other sponsor's website. That's Hiroshi Shimizu, immigration lawyer and administrative scrivener. If you're thinking about moving here on a more permanent basis, or you're already in Japan on some sort of a temporary visa, and you want to switch to a longer term or permanent one, or if you're considering setting up a local company or a branch office of a foreign company and you've got any sort of business or visa related inquiries, or even if you just want to find out what your options are on any of these topics, feel free to contact Hiroshi Shimizu. You can find him at japanimmigrationexperts.com and he can help you set up a company, apply for any kind of visa, or just provide you with the best advice and extremely affordable consultation related to these topics. And he's already done that for many of our listeners. So feel free to reach out to him. Again, that's japanimmigrationexperts.com and you'll be well on your way. 
And that's it from us for today, folks. Hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Japan Real Estate Podcast. Do share it with your networks and please let us know what you think. So leave us a short rating or review on the iTunes store, on Spotify, or just drop us a line in the comment section of wherever you might have found this episode. We love hearing from you. Hope to have you with us again next time. And until then, have a great day or night ahead. Yoroshiku. Bye.